specific way to cut French cheese. And so, you know, they come in triangles. And then you can't come and just chop the top of the triangle off because that's the one that tastes the best. That's because the... And then so my kids know the rules on how you're supposed to cut. So you gotta eat the rind first? Well, you have to cut from the center out. So you cut a, a slice uh, with the, the radius of the circle. Because okay. fermentation goes in a circle. Mm-hmm. I can eat at your house. So my name is John Stempeck and uh, I've been uh, transplanted here in the New England area since about 1966. So I figured that my uh, grandchildren's grandchildren would be regarded as me. Did you come here to go to school? Is that what you came for? Yes, I came here to go to MIT, actually. Oh, undergraduate okay. MIT, that's, that's engineering. That's Are you involved with blockchain? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what blockchain is, nor do I want to know. <laughs> Uh, but uh, yes, I had a, a, a great uh, educational experience at MIT, and then electrical engineering, and you know, immediately went to work for Polaroid Corporation. Which Polaroid, was right behind. Broadcast number two, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Number two. We, we, oh, is that right? Yeah. You had Polaroid. Uh, excellent. And one of the guys who was there for thirty years, and he told some stories that you know Edward Land would not have liked. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, I've got stories as well. Because yeah, that's what we see it from the uh, inside. It's really different, you know. Yeah. And it's dated, right? It goes back that time. But there's so many. And that little building on Memorial Drive. Oh, there were multiple actually. There was one just across the bridge. The, the one that bridge. looks like 1952. Yeah, right. <laughs> that one. Well, well Polaroid a, is one of the greatest stories ever. Oh, it was such fun, right? I mean, Edward Land truly was a genius uh, in terms of, of bringing the product to market and uh, inventing the film. And you all know the story about his daughter asking why it couldn't happen. And so he spent many years and easily... That was broadcast number two. Yeah. A billion dollars <clears throat> doing that. So, uh, But the problem, of course, was that it was a, uh, a one-product company. And it was instant film, which is fantastic, uh, but the film was horrible in terms of its characteristics compared to Kodak film. So you needed to develop a very intricate uh, camera system that um, surrounded that. As a matter of fact, have you ever seen the camera? Yeah. I mean, there's multiple uh, iteration of that Polaroid camera. How are they going to see this on the podcast? All right. Let's discuss. Mick, you're... It, it's a thing oh, of this is the one that comes out like an accordion. Yeah. Yes, yes. It's, it's still the world's only sing- folding single-lens reflex camera. Uh, and the film, of course, went into here. So you had something to do with this? Uh, I've got eight patents on this. Uh, I designed a lot of the electronics you personally? that we use personally. Uh, excellent. Uh, Did you uh, keep them? <laughs> no. They, they, I received the enormous sum of $1 for each patent. <laughs> <laughs> but Edwin Land was uh, known for... Uh, patenting everything. He maintained an entire department of patent attorneys, uh, second only to Thomas Edison. What kind of leather is that on there? Oh, the is leather. That Corinthian I, leather? No, let's not find anything, I don't <laughs> think. That's what I found in my bag. So your name would be on the patent 
So would Polaroid's name or oh yes, how does Polaroid. That work? You'd sold. You basically immediately sold it to Polaroid, and there were other people on the team, and depending on which patent it was, well, so, uh, be so you tried to include the team and and that sort of thing. <clears throat> but the electronics, the, the electronics had to be extremely uh, sophisticated. We were well ahead of Nikon and Canon at the time by at least a decade, uh, because with the film was so terrible, we had to control every aspect of the light that hit the film and the flash and. Uh, uh, just had a terrible curve. And this single lens reflex, Land was very proud of it. But the problem was it um, people couldn't, especially older people, couldn't see uh, the My chin got in the way. My chin got in the way. Is that right? Chin, <laughs> yeah. really? Okay, good. So uh, <clears throat> eventually, um, uh, Polaroid designed, <clears throat> after spending a billion dollars on this and having a lot of fun. By the way, it was tremendous fun at the time. I mean, it was like a, I was like a you know, kid in a candy store. I mean, in engineering, you come in, you do whatever you want, you can buy whatever you want. Fabulous company. Everybody had a great time. That's the, the, the end, the second half of the 60s. Yeah, that was actually through the, about mid-70s. 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 I stayed there until about 82 and then went over to uh, the dark side. Uh, with uh, Deloitte at Braxton Associates, which Ooh. was the strategy consulting firm. Ooh, that's where you make money, but you don't do anything interesting. <laughs> Actually, it was really interesting. Yeah. You travel the world and and talk to uh, CEOs and uh, tell them they're not they don't have any they're not wearing any clothes, <laughs> which is really a, a very interesting perspective. Who was Braxton? So Braxton uh, was founded by George Braxton Bennett, who uh, was one of the early founders of Bain and Company. And uh, some of the partners there, including um, Bill Ebling, uh, came over at the time. <clears throat> and the, we competed against the likes of McKenzie, yep. uh, Boston Consulting Group, uh, Braxton. We were all sort of in it together um, and really redefining what strategy was for the corporation at that period of time. So management consulting, going in and helping companies figure out what, where they're going. What yes, they're, what if they're, what very much so. Yeah. Uh, and typically, you wouldn't be called in until things were really in bad shape, and that was always the issue and the problem. Uh, we thought... Uh, well, did you turn down many assignments? Say, oh, it's too tough. You're too, too deep a hole. We can't uh, dig you out of that. Um, we or as long as you down. can afford to pay us, we'll uh, be over there to work for you. <laughs> Pretty much. You nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> but if you, if you look at it and say, I can't fix it, you still take the assignment? That's what I was just asking. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, <laughs> yeah, you'd, you'd, you'd make recommendations, right? I mean, the, the name of this was, how do you help the client get out of trouble that they'd gotten into, typically over a decade, span of a decade, as opposed to something that just happened uh, yesterday. And most of the time, the clients were... Um, they were just behind in technology. They were behind in delivery systems. They were behind the eight ball in many different aspects. They had poor cultures that wouldn't weren't responsive uh, to the, what the needs of the moment. So you, it, it was never one thing. There was always a multiple of things that hit the fan all at one point in time. But were you applying your engineering skills the skills to the flowchart of the management uh, hierarchy? You know, it's interesting um, that uh, what, that question because. The key thing that all these um, senior m management consulting firms have developed is a tool set. And the tool set includes things such as intimate knowledge of how to do an experience curve, uh, 
how to do substitution analysis, how to do conjoint analysis, and it's a mix of all these different tools that you have to use to solve the client's problem. It's not usually intuitively obvious uh, what the uh, client's major problem is, but once you start applying uh, all these various tools, you find some really interesting things happening. I'll give you, uh, actually I'll give you an example uh, from, um, uh, a couple of examples. Uh, I'll give you an example from Xerox, where I worked for uh, about four years as well, in corporate headquarters. Actually, I worked internal. So you worked at Xerox, Xerox as after, a consultant? No. I, I oh, worked, that's after. I worked at Xerox after I left uh, Braxton Associates. I spent okay. one year with EDS um, uh, and then moved on to uh, Xerox for four years and then started my own company called Avalon Associates for about 15 years. Okay. <clears throat> Have you ever been to Avalon? Uh, New Jersey? <laughs> no, it's an it's an <laughs> it's island off. It's a town on an island in Catalina Islands across uh, across the coast of um, California. No, no, I haven't. Oh, it's a beautiful that. town. Yeah, I chose the name for two reasons. Uh, one is because it's the island where King Arthur went to die, so I thought it was basically going to heaven. And the other reason was because I live on a street called Avalon. I looked out the okay, window then. and there was. <laughs> okay, then. <laughs> so you can choose whichever one of those. If you couldn't remember the name, you just looked up. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, hey, I should remind Boston Harbor Angels, someone lives on the harbor. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> My wife came up with that name because she said it's Marketing 101. And she was a, you know, an econ economics major, and she didn't, uh, you know, I don't know how she knew Marketing 101, but it made sense to me, too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. So Xerox, that must have been ama an amazing experience. So we need to go back to all this. But Sure, sure. Exactly. But but to sort of follow the thread, uh, you what we did was we would come in as a case team and we would apply all these different uh, techniques uh, to the client's issue. So, for example, uh, for uh, the experience curve. I mean, many people talk about the experience curve or learning curve, but they don't really know what it is. They don't know how to actually do it. Uh, and they rarely teach it in... Uh, in um, management consulting or in, in the uh, advanced academic environment. Uh, it, it basically says that for every doubling of accumulated volume, you'll come down a cost curve. And that cost curve may be, if it's mechanical types of parts, um, it might be 5%. If it's electronic, you might be coming down a 15% curve. So let me give you an example. If you made um, a million of a certain type of integrated circuit, you would experience a certain cost of manufacture for that circuit. <clears throat> to get to, let's say, a 10% reduction in cost, you'd have to make two million. And then to get that same uh, re reduction in cost, you'd have to make four, and then eight, and then 16. So you can see that it's, it becomes exponential, and you typically plot this on a log-log curve in a straight curve. <clears throat> Let me tell you the relevance of that. At, uh, when I was at Xerox, uh, I got to tour uh, all of the different divisions along with Paul Lair, who was the CEO. I worked at the corporate office. And they had just gotten into, uh, in previous year or two, uh, the uh, inkjet industry, inkjet printers. And when uh, we, we were faced with the uh, talking to the individuals uh, from the inkjet group, they came in with a bottle of champagne in their hand, and they were proclaiming they just made their millionth inkjet pr uh, cartridge, and it was a wonderful thing, and it's just great. And I turned to Paul Lair, and I said, Paul, we either need to get on a new technology curve, we need to get out of this business. And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, uh, I just did some work on Hewlett Packard, who's also in the industry, and they just made their 350 millionth inkjet cartridge. 
So using a, just even a 5% experience curve, which I just described to you, they're at 30% of our cost position. They'll crush us. As soon as we get to 1% market share or 2%, they can drop their price. They're still profitable. We're going to go red, and it's going to be a horrible bloodbath. And Paul turned to me and said, well, you know, these people came in with this champagne. I can't, like, do that. And besides which, <laughs> yeah. no one believes in this academic nonsense of uh, experience curves anyway. <laughs> Three years later, in the Wall Street Journal, reported that the Xerox got out of the inkjet business to the cost of $750 million. So, we, you know, the, the relevance <laughs> of the tool set <clears throat> is that when you see it happening, and the more you apply these tools, you can it becomes very intuitive. And but that would tell you not even get in the business if, the, if somebody has that kind of dominance and yes what it, well, what it does do is it says you should do your homework first and understand where they are on the, on the but if I build curve. my own Xerox machine then I can put my own ink cartridge in it which won't work at Hewlett Packard's absolutely and so again that gives me some life it uh, is unfortunate it's a very short life because they'll crush you and it's mm. very very competitive in that industry and all the money by the way is made on the inkjet cartridges none is made of course. on the, none of the equipment on, on the so that's why you needed a, a partner uh, at the but time but so so when people when you when us everybody when you make a recommendation to someone i always find it very complicated for people to listen to you and, it, and the more the change, the more the change you're recommending. Just like the is, CEO. It's yeah. big. Yeah. <laughs> Got no clothes. The, the more, it, I mean, if you say, look, you're in the wrong business or you have to change, it seems that people, and that's my colleague, David, who's coming soon, we always, he, we have a fight continuously on what makes a company fail. So you have to, the, the uh, let me just add to that, uh, because that's a, yeah, a major issue. Because we, if, you, if you answer, we have no more podcasts. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, no. yeah. yeah, you answer There's the no question about failure, no we'll never, yeah. never be able to have another have podcast. Avoid, like polar, yeah, keep going, and then I'll ask. <laughs> well, there's a technique for convincing someone, and the technique is that you never confront them with the answer first. What you do is you feed them a little bit of knowledge that they're aware of, such as this is the market, this is what it looks like, this is who your competitors are. You, and, and what you do is you try to get them to nod their head, that they accept what you're telling them as a fact base. And you're using facts. You're not doing innuendo. You're not pulling it out of the sky or anything. You've got good justification for every one of these. And by the 10th slide, they all have come to the same conclusion that you did if you gently bring them to that place. So it if becomes you, their idea. Absolutely, their it becomes conclusion. their idea because they agree with the fact set that you're doing. And it's, it's really stunning uh, what happens when you have a very well-organized presentation. And that's what you need to do, in what well, we found anyway, in corporate America. You could not just blatantly come out and say, you need to change. What you had to do is establish why you needed the change and what were those overwhelming forces, typically outside or competitive or new technology or, or foreign com competition coming in, that, that meant you had to change. And we would see it, of course, uh, in the management consulting group. But then we had to think about how do we back this up and gently bring our client to the and same And to tell conclusion. them, look, you're going the wrong way. But how about the, the counter-influence, the, the champagne bottle? The Wall Street stock, the analysts, the so the CEO is squeezed between you and everybody else, and it takes a lot of courage to say, you know what, I'm I'm going to uh, uh, um, stop that party with a champagne bottle. We're going the wrong way, but very few people can do that. Correct. That's that's, that's very true. Um, but the 
the key is do you do you agree with the the problem and the answer to the problem? And by the way, there's different ways of solving the, the like the inject cartridge. <clears throat> the question was, could you move on to a different technology curve, and meaning that you will come down this curve much faster? You're using a different technology than HP, for example. Instead of cartridges, you did an entire wide swath of, of so you produced this this page. You printed out in two seconds as opposed to this cartridge moving back and forth. There are different ways of addressing the issue, and but you're right, it really comes back to what the CEO wants to do and how he wants to accomplish it, and do they have the backbone, quite frankly, to, to accomplish it. And that's why the lifetime of many CEOs is three to five years. I mean, you know, and they, then they leave before the, their failure sticks to them and then go to somewhere. Unfortunately, yes. And so they bring in someone else to fix the problem, right? I want to get my bonus and get out of here. <laughs> Where's my golden parachute? So where? So the curve, the, I call it the failure curve. So there's a mm-hmm. point in time where people know that a project is, is failing. And the question is, when is that inflection point and who knows that it's it's coming. So in your experience, can you tell us how do you, when do you know that something is going to fail? And, and or where, is there a moment in time where you look at it and say, oh, this is going nowhere, I better jump ship? Well, there, again, there are, there are different ways of looking at it. Oh, uh, did you find that at Polaroid? Did you jump ship at Polaroid because you saw they were going into the toilet? Yes. Yes, I did. You did? Okay. I did. I jumped ship because I got I got my MBA while I was working at, at Polaroid, and I couldn't understand why the management uh, weren't finding the right markets or products to move into. And let me give you uh, another sort of pithy example. Um, Polaroid decided to uh, use a, a carbon-based product, uh, film kind of product, to replace X-ray film that that uh, Kodak basically owned the x-ray market for medical x-ray film. And everyone complained about how long it took to kind of develop this wet film process. So Polaroid said, we can do this. So they decided to use a carbon-based product. And indeed, it it, uh, worked. And after hundreds of millions of dollars being spent in terms of development of the product, they decided to, of course, bring it to market and see whether doctors liked it or not. And as it turns out, it had lower resolution than the the Kodak film. So what do doctors get sued on for making analyses or diagnoses where they didn't have enough information? And do you think doctors care about cost, really? Of course not. They didn't care about the cost. They wanted higher resolution. They didn't want lower resolution. It looks like a small tumor. (laughs) (laughs) Or it's a a pixel that's off on the... Not sure. <laughs> okay, so sure. Car- car- just carbon-based did what form as opposed to what was the ultimate? What was Kodak using? They were using their uh, their film-based product, which had about an order of magnitude higher resolution. It was silver-based, and but they were trying to get carbon sounds from. cheaper. It was cheaper, but again, <laughs> doctors don't care. So this is where you'd use conjoint analysis. You'd come in and you'd say. What does the customer really value? Not just on one thing, but usually it's a spread of five to seven different items that are important to them in different ratios. So if you asked 10 doctors how they felt about x-ray film versus resolution, what are, what are the key aspects of it? Is it the cost, the resolution, the speed of processing? Those kinds of elements that the doctors really, really So they didn't know to. their customers. They did not know what doctors wanted. I can't tell you how many times in the course of the... Ten years at Braxton and five years at Xerox, in my own ten years of strategy consulting, where we come into a company and they don't know really what their customers want or need. They don't understand 
what the customers really want. I'll give you a, a happy story. A happy story was when I was working for Manpower. That's against the rules on yes. this. No, sorry. David yes. is not here to. <laughs> yeah. So David, sorry. Okay, we'll, we're we'll, we're we'll doing a happy story. <laughs> so I was working for Manville Forest Products. They make the envelopes that went into FedEx. The FedEx envelopes, yeah. the ones you stick your things into. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> And we'd done it with that little glassine shield in front. You yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That was it was those products, and they were seemed very, like a very stupid idea to me, but good I guess it all worked. Uh, but FedEx was very good, as you know, and, and super success. Uh, so we went. They were a supplier to FedEx for these envelopes, and we'd done an extensive sort of customer needs uh, analysis. And I'm sitting in front with, along with the Manville salesperson, sitting in front of the uh, senior vice president of purchasing at FedEx, and we're walking through all these different aspects of what they like about the product and the service that Manville is providing for them in this particular product. And they were going, this is great. We'd give them a 10 out of a 10, a 9 out of 10. I said, this is one. I said, you, you're, this is fabulous. You're giving all these superlatives for this product, but we only have 50% of the business. I said, is there any way we can get more of the business? And, you know, and, the, and the senior vice president said, well, if you had a second plant so that if something burnt down on the other one, I'd, yeah, I'd give you the entire business. So the salesperson sitting next to me fell off his chair because his commission just got doubled on this huge product, <laughs> right? But he never thought to ask, why can't we get more of the business? He never thought to ask, what do you like about us? Do you like all these different aspects? And it's not just like, they've proven it over a number of years. And Manville was just ecstatic that they got 90% of the additional, or 50% more of the business, I should say, because they had multiple plants. They could easily produce this in multiple plants, but no one asked that question. So that's a happy story. Good, good. So so the meat of this discussion that I've been burning to, to get into is the whole Xerox Labs all these inventions, all the things that supposedly were invented by Xerox, but somebody else took them, and and uh, you hear these these uh, urban <laughs> myths. Right. So this is this podcast is going to be epic and it's going to be demystify everything. Yeah, but Xerox was Kleenex. I mean, they they captured the name, the whatever you know, reproduction. Xerox is what you do. You and Xerox a, and, something. Yeah, but they had a lab, so a secret lab. Was it secret right, or not so secret? It wasn't secret. No, they put about a billion dollars a year into that lab. <laughs> okay. uh, it was called Palo Alto Research Labs, part for short. And uh, I did tour the labs on a quarterly basis just to see what they had in terms of new inventions. And, and quite honestly, some of those uh, we're actually seeing today, even in terms of like people locators and buildings and whatnot. But I think one of the, the – I'll give you a couple of stories. Everyone's familiar with Steve Jobs taking a tour of the labs, right? Yeah. And so when Steve Jobs went through and he saw the graphical user interface. That's uh, right. The, the, the GUI. The, the GUI, GUI. The famous GUI. The famous GUI. Uh, the mouse. The right? mouse. That's another when one. When he saw those types of things being used, he immediately adopted those, took them back, and they formed the Macintosh. That's right. So he them. took them back. He took the idea, or did he pay? Did he license? Did he? What did he do? Um, the rumor has it, and I don't know this for sure, that uh, Xerox had a small uh, equity percentage of Apple at the time. At the time. Whether they did or not. And we don't know whether it was because of a lawsuit uh, that uh, happened between Xerox and Apple or a threat of a lawsuit uh, at that time. Uh, to basically John, the only Steve rule is Jobs. no pounding on the table, so oh, be sorry, careful. My, yeah. I was going to pound my ring here. But this is a clear example of how uh, Xerox didn't know what to do with all the developments. I mean, you have to understand, Park Labs was filled with PhDs. And they were, it was, again, it was like a, 
just a, a playhouse, that the candy store. They could do whatever they want. They had basically unlimited funds, and John Seely Brown was uh, at that time was sort of running the organization. A billion dollars to to invent things all day long, all Absolutely. year. But what would happen uh, is that when when someone thought there was a good idea and they wanted to commercialize it, they would take it out of Park Labs and they would put it into one of the operating divisions of Xerox. Now, the operating division was uh, judged on revenue growth and profitability growth in their present products. So had they had not the time nor the willingness to nurture some small spin-off from Park Labs, invariably they died. They died there, or they got spun out of the corporation. And there, is, there are numerous people who, who saw the value in some of these developments that came out of uh, the Park Labs, and they literally took them to the market and got signed releases from Xerox to develop them. And they've turned, in, they've turned into really beautiful companies or products. I wonder if there's more, more products came out of the labs or from actual Xerox. Like there's, there's probably, I bet you it's even. Like there's as many products went and didn't just died on the shelf than the ones that were really uh, Well, they, I don't think Xerox didn't really develop a lot of them. You have to understand, they're at the very essence of their core, they're a hardware company. They're a printer company. They do commercial printing and for commercial labs, right? The DocuTech printer, 150 page per minute, uh, double-sided printer is their, one of their mainstays. Uh, they were unsuccessful in inkjet printing, as I just mentioned. Whenever they tried to get into the consumer environment, they didn't know how to get into that market. Uh, so in commercial printing, they were okay, but they were always competing against offset and gravure printing, which is, of course, what the big boys use. You know, the, the, the Xerox salesmen, and we used to hire a lot of sales, uh, Xerox salesmen because they were the, the best salesmen. And it was like the originally the IBM people selling these electronics <laughs> because they say, throw away your typewriter and use this. And people were going, huh, what? Right. And then Xerox saying, get rid of your carbons, get rid of that special paper that you know does this. And I can have a machine that makes copies quickly. Right. I mean, people couldn't accept it. The market was really having difficulty, but the, the greatest salesmen sold that stuff, and um, they, they, had the, they owned the market. They did, and yeah. they created a $16 billion company off of that in terms of the, the copiers, right? I mean, because mm -hmm. they were very excellent. You know, I have to distinguish between copiers and printers. So, so copiers, at the time that I was at, at Xerox in the corporate headquarters. I have a special one at home at copies and prints. Yeah, no. Wow, it's amazing. <laughs> and faxes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but everyone could see the fall off in copiers use, right? Because who would copy things? Because the digital revolution was happening. So everything, this was uh, late 90s. So copiers were dropping off dramatically. Printing was increasing dramatically. And so there was a crossover point that occurred about 1996, 1997, where there are about equal volumes being being I remember that. Copied. So if you were to put in parallel Xerox and Polaroid, Xerox survived, Polaroid failed. Xerox saw the change in the market, saw the digital revolution. And um, what, in your opinion, is, is the difference between the two companies? Well, I, I, uh, I would not label Xerox as a success by any stretch of the imagination. I think oh, they're, they're still, still alive. I guess they're still alive, they're still hanging on. You've seen the recent reports in the Wall Street Journal about uh, uh, them being perhaps you know, taken over by the, uh, the shareholders uh, and wanting to change the management and split up the company. Uh, at, at the same time that I joined 
uh, Xerox, they're about a $16 billion company, and Hewlett Packard is about the same size. Hewlett Packard went on to become an $80 billion company and then split and grew even more than that. So I think they're, what, $56 billion or something now. Xerox dropped to $14 billion. So when I see that happening, I'm going, we're doing something wrong at Xerox. Okay, you're the consultant at Xerox. You're there looking at it saying, what do we do? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, he has the answer. He has the answer. Well, let me give you another story because I always love stories. You love stories, stories, right? We're all about stories. stories. So uh, I met when I was on one of my tours of Park Labs, I met an individual by the name of Nick Sheridan. And Nick, I said, John, he said, I got to show you this. And I said, what is it, Nick? And he brings me into his lab. What what year is that, roughly? That was 1999. Okay. I said, Nick, what is it? I'm, I'm rustling some paper here now. And he said, look at this paper. And I, I said, what about it? He said, well, you see how it looks, it looks like a newspaper right now? Watch this. And he pressed a button, and the page completely changed. And I said, Nick, how did you do that? This is super thin paper. I mean, you can, it's like, he said, it's electrostatics. It uses no power. I have a little sphere. I've got millions of little spheres in this thing. One side's coated with titanium dioxide, um, which is white. And the other is carbon black, which is on the other side of the sphere, which is more black. And so I can rotate the spheres using this electric field. And I can do this and and change what you're looking at. And now think today about the Kindle, right? Oh. Do you think the Kindle? So I said, Nick, do we have a patent on this? Do we have intellectual property? He said, John, not only do we have a patent on it, it runs out next week. <laughs> <laughs> he said, so we sat on this for 17 years. Is that right? <laughs> so we had to develop it. <laughs> I said, Nick, I can't believe. So what's what's the company behind Ink uh, uh, Kindle? What is that company? Um, Oh, it was a company that was uh, started by Joe Josephson over at MIT, and as soon as the patent ran out at at Xerox, he came out with exactly the same, very, very similar technology. And I'm trying to remember. How do it know? It's, it's 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 the technology is unbelievable. I mean, you know, you it's pretty cool, right? You push, yeah, you you push a little home page at the top of your Kindle, and then the next minute you have a whole different book. But I'll give you another example of how, of how even with this particular product, uh, things got dragged on, and people don't ask enough questions. Nick told me that he needed a new carbon compound because you know for for the toner basically on the on these particles, and he said I've been investigating this for a year trying to find the right particle, and I said Nick, you really we're the largest toner manufacturer in the world, right? Our plant up in Canada, Missapequa, I can never pronounce it, uh, Canada, produces more uh, toner for our, our, our devices than any place else in the world. I said, let me give them a call. They came down the next week, and that afternoon they solved its problem. So all he had to do was take advantage of the resources that were internal to the company instead of just sort of being in this little cubicle office and trying to invent everything themselves. And that's why an advisor sometimes is important, someone who has a big picture, who knows what's going on other places to, to resolve exactly. the problem. So, so your, your point, though, is, is how do you tell a company what to do and what? And, um, where to move on. And so with, uh, I went back to corporate headquarters and screamed and shouted about this radically new display system. And they did form a company that was actually started down here in, uh, in Canton, but they were late to the market and they'd lost some of the traction in terms of being able to do it. And they, the competition was already created and they were off to the races. So it was a little, too little, too late, not recognizing 
that the how revolutionary this was in the market itself. And so I, I lay that at kind of the feet of the people who were managing Park at the time. It was a, it was a candy store. They loved inventing things, but they didn't know what to do with them. Xerox management. Because um, I was at corporate headquarters, I know the management there. They they had no idea about how to commercialize these or what the value of it was, and how to take it to market. Because there was almost a hundred percent focus still on the hardware that would consume their core business. And this is you'll read this in books. You've seen this in books from everywhere. Is that people get blindsided by their present business. A, a Polaroid, I'm going to come back full circle, Polaroid was blindsided by the fact that they were a single product company, instant film. And they kept trying to find new uses for instant film that didn't quite fit. You know, didn't the drawer didn't fit in the dresser. You, you keep know, pushing you it. You keep pushing it and trying <laughs> to force it to happen. And uh, let me give you another example from that. Uh, it was called, I believe, the Sesame System. Uh, as Kodak was getting out of the uh, movie film business, uh, the amateur movie film business, uh, Dr. Land decided to get into it using instant film. That's right. We I, heard I, that, we heard that, that story. With the, from the COO. Yeah, go ahead. So I was offered the uh, uh, general manager of that entire group to develop that product. I turned it down. Because it was not career enhancing for me in many respects. But that was a smart I mean, move. Now we know how it ended. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you could see the end first, it's always helpful. <laughs> yeah. you know. But, but I had just come back from the Consumer Electronics Show. And what was in the Consumer Electronics Show? Video. So video, the, the, the Sesame product had grainy film, three minutes worth, no audio, and a big kludgy uh, thing that you know, to process the film. And if we looked at the, compared that to the video systems, they had one hour of video, better resolution, audio was there, and they were coming down an electronic experience curve. The mechanical system, the camera system, probably had a 5% experience curve. The electronic was coming screaming down at 15 to 20% because you had all these large Japanese manufacturers, you recall, the Japanese manufacturers called Sony and others. Hi, David. We have a oh. party crasher. Hey, hey. Uh, David, there's just crashed our party. You guys are all kicked <laughs> out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No, 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 there's going we're, to be a dip. We have to start over now. The is back. Party. We're not allowed. We did everything that's not allowed. <laughs> we were. <laughs> Yeah, Damn. everything <laughs> that was not allowed. So sorry, John. Wait, wait, John's got we notes. have to. We I have did. to go I was back. About this, you oh, know, this has been amazing. We started without you. We've well, been Polaroid zero. And so the best part's over. The best is yet to come, man. Come okay. on, John. Okay, I'm boring. John's getting warmed up, and he's an IP lawyer, so yeah. he's. Oh yeah, right. I, I can just intuit what you've been talking about. <laughs> of course, what the hell are you just talking blows. about? <laughs> How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good to see you. Do you like yeah. the? Uh, do you like the? Uh, that we have these sheets hanging around here to. I do. It's the whole audio thing. The reflections yeah. from the it's audio. Very high yeah. tech. Yeah, it's I had very to high tech. Be concerned about that when what I did the that? design for the ultrasonic uh, uh, range menu oh. system. He has eight patents on this thing. Can anybody yeah. in the audience who's listening to this see that? We we described you it. You described it. What did you say? It looked accordion like accordion shaped Polaroid camera. You Google Polaroid camera, and then you get one of these. An SX-70 camera system, the own world's only, still the only folding single-lens reflex camera system that was uh, was designed, of course. By I think, Polaroid. was there one that's the exact same one, but double the size? Yes. Bit, yeah. As a matter of fact, that's what I didn't I had get into, one, yeah. was uh, Polaroid did not do the analysis that people didn't want to buy a $200 camera system that they couldn't see uh, what they were focusing at. That's the problem with this camera, is that it's got a very small amount of light. This, When you look through this, it actually focuses on your retina. 
not on your eye. So as this started failing, quite frankly, uh, Polaroid designed a very boxy looking camera yeah. that sold for $25, used the same film. And by the way, the film is where the profit is. So it's all profit in the film. It's not the it's camera. The it's razor, not, razor blade. It is model. total razor, sounds razor like blade the printer, printer and um, printer copy change. machine. You know. So wait a minute. So I think that was around. When, when did that come around? Come out that was uh, mid. You know, it was uh, 1972 so to late. 1975. Yeah, was Nick was around when they invented the bellows. <laughs> oh, the bellows. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> that would be like not go there. 1600. Yeah. Well, they, they, they knocked, Polaroid knocked off my bellows on that little thing there, yeah. <laughs> so, humor is that we were very serious until you showed up, by the way. <laughs> well, I would like to give you an example, though, of, a, of another successful. Yes. Where you can, Even though we're not allowed success. to have success. We've been talking about well, failures. Which is the opposite failures. of failure, by the way. It's like a negative I failure. I think there's a failure in every success. Yeah. There is, absolutely. <laughs> it's all it's about timing, profound. right? Yeah, right Everything yeah. will turn into a failure given well, time. That's, that's, the, that's the case of saying I should have added another zero to that bill. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, Braxton did a lot of work for uh, Corning. Uh, remember, it was called Corning Glass yes, at one point. they're out of Ohio. Yeah. They're actually they're out of um, uh, El, El Corning, oh, New York. Yeah. Just oh, north right. of Elmira. Okay, they had yeah. a big plant in uh, Toledo. Yes, they Ohio. do. They have a huge plant in Toledo. Yeah, there were yeah, very different yeah. areas. My wife was from Toledo. But in the mid-'80s, uh, Braxton convinced them to move into fiber optics. Everybody today thinks this fiber optics. This is not Michael Braxton, just, the musician. No, no. This is Braxton Associates, which oh, was the strategy arm of Deloitte. I see. That Deloitte bought. Uh, I have a whole story about that, too, if you'd like to hear it. We have enough time. Oh, the um, sex <laughs> it's called make. It's called make. <laughs> it's called make versus buy. That's always a bad start. I've got a long story. If you also, have I'll save you a lot of time if you're thinking no, no, of starting. No, we have all the time <laughs> we in the world. We just and we ever cut whatever we don't like. Yeah. Yeah, if you're ever thinking of starting a professional services firm, don't just buy one. Yeah. Don't think about making one. <laughs> buy one. Oh, that's a good. That's a good. Yeah. Uh, I've seen it happen three times now at uh, the billion dollar level, oh, wow. and it's always a disaster trying to make your own. Ah. So, in any event, um, we convinced. Uh, Corning to move into fiber optics because the fiber optics could handle gigabits worth of data, right? Absolutely yep. huge amounts of data. Uh, and How as opposed that to happen? cable. Oh, go down that little glass thing. I mean, it's hard uh, yeah. to believe. Yeah. It's a little glass too, yeah. right? Yeah. And it yeah. actually works. But, you know, at that time, uh, it wasn't clear that that would be successful glass versus clear. cable. Uh-huh. Get the pun. Yeah, it's really Keep good. Going. So to put it in a drawing so tower, a drawing tower costs at that time $100 million. So it was a what? $100 million to put in what's called a drawing That's tower. That's to stretch the thing out, the yes. glass oh. out. You melt the glass, super specialized glass. You oh. pull it very, very slowly like this oh. in a really high tower. And to develop that tower cost $100 million. So it was not clear that this was going to be a success, right? Because you had to make millions of miles of this glass and have someone buy it. As it turns out, AT&T loved it because they were doing the long lines then. They were shipping you know, data around the world, literally, and there were such delays and they needed so many amplifiers and whatnot, they thought this could solve the problem, which, by the way, it did. I mean, fiber optics has revolutionized the entire industry. So they pull this no, glass. We want to know the next one. Fiber optics. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's fiber what optic. we're really, We can invest in that Success. now. Success. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
But you know the, the 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 problem again in the delivery of this it was very major because they the all the the cabling companies the people who actually strung the cable and whatnot they had no faith in fiber optics none of them would work with Corning. 201. Everyone said this is going to be a failure. It's an anomaly. Glass breaks, doesn't it? Glass breaks, exactly. <laughs> you need to cable somehow. None of them would work with Corning. So Corning formed a partnership with Siemens called Secor, formed their own cabling company, and the rest was history. They were cabling this. They came out to market with literally millions and millions of feet of it. And I can tell you that every cabling company in the world crawled to corporate headquarters at Corning begging for a share of the business, which Corning gave them because the market was growing so quickly they couldn't supply it all themselves. So, okay, how tall is the tower? In, the tower is the, about uh, 100 feet. And so they would do one at a time, 10 at a time, 1,000 no, at a time? there multiple towers then. And I'm they sorry, where was it? Well, that was the success story. That was the well, success, success story, oh. absolutely. Ziad yeah, David just, only loves <laughs> failure. <laughs> I, was, I saw Ziad zoning <laughs> out. No, no, I'm sorry. It was just me. We have <laughs> 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 more success stories. You must be a film critic. The timeline of this podcast is schadenfreude. We rejoice at other people's misery. Makes us feel better about our yeah, exactly. <laughs> we feel very successful. Pass me that bourbon. <laughs> yeah. right. Pass me the glass. So, so where would you like to go? You want to go into yeah. more of the seeds of failure or the seeds of success? The Polaroid story, we spent some time on it because we had a whole podcast by the COO who told all the stories. All the, he dirtied all the linen. And, but the fact is <laughs> that there was lots there, were, there was lots and lots of stuff in their in their IP lab that was had to do with light wavelengths all kinds of things that could have gone a whole bunch of different directions correct in fact there's a company that's up in uh, Lowell that has a lot of their technologies that they're developing for military uses stealth mm -hmm. uh, wavelengths of light they can make a you know a truck look like a, a toy car right they can do all kinds of different things that i can't tell you anymore because they have to kill you exactly well they, probably, they've already i think they've already done that <laughs> so anyway but right nobody brain, was, <laughs> like the lab at uh, at par uh, at xerox who was looking at these things and saying, this is good, this is bad, nobody was doing that and looking at that stuff. Can we commercialize this? Can we commercialize that? Again, uh, most of the company was focused on their core products. And what was successful was what everyone focused on. And they didn't feel they had the time uh, and didn't want to spend the money to go after unknown markets where it could have been uh, a success. Others were a failure of what I would call culture. I mean, I'll give you an example. One of the... Um, R&D groups that developed much of the technology and the electronics and associated with this. Don't pound the table. Was, oh, was, you can pound the table. I've adjusted the mics. <laughs> was, uh, was headed by an individual who was a, a doctorate uh, from Switzerland. And uh, his idea of watching TV was he would uh, he kept his TV, small TV, up on the upper shelf in his closet. And when they wanted to watch a show, they would take the TV down and put it on the table, watch the show. And then they, when we were finished, they would shut it off and put the TV back into the closet and close the door. And when I heard this story, as he was telling it to me, I was going, well, that doesn't seem like you're with the now generation. I mean, people in the social media, not social media at that time, but the, the form of social media, and all the shows that were happening, what young people were thinking, where they were going, the trends in the market. That was a perfect example to me of someone who was living in the dark ages. 
and yet they were heading up an R&D program to create a brand new revolutionary camera system. So there's a culture involved here of people who have very strict ideas about what they want to make and why they want to make it and what they're going to focus on. And they focus on that and they miss all the other beautiful things that are going around them. Because of happening. their own personalities. Absolutely. And it's all personalities. This reminds me of that Michael Pollan book you're reading now. People need to get outside their own heads. The new yeah, Michael well, Pollan book. they say book. that you know, up, up there in the... Um, in the Northern California, the Berkeley and in yeah, that's why Stanford, so inventive they were up there. taking all kinds of drugs up there to right. Uh, right. LSD and different uh, MDA and stuff. Yeah. That was right. that's why they're so inventive. Brilliant ideas. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, but idea ideas are not everything. I mean, you can yeah. have a lab producing ten ideas a day. That doesn't mean they're going to execution is everything. Yeah. Yes, it has to be the the right idea at the right time. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Something occurred to me. I've heard this before. Companies that run out of money often fail. So that's my theory. <laughs> I, I was trying to It's developed over it's 20 years of podcast. So I think you're right. And by the way, we're in a perfect spot for it because the biotech companies are a perfect example of that. They have huge cash amounts. You can you can tell to the day when they're going to fail because as the cash gets wound down and they haven't commercialized a product, they're going to go out of business unless they're bought by some big other uh, Absolutely. And so what... Tell us, tell so us. we can <laughs> tell we, us something. Tell us. I will. Something. No, and we'll <laughs> close the podcast. We will not do an, an, any episode. We promise we won't ask any what more questions. Are, because they, we, we have this fight, not fight, fight. disagreement on fight. what makes a business fail. Oh, not this. And you're so perfectly oh. positioned. Oh, yeah, yeah. You've seen wait, Polaroid. Wait a second. He hasn't even talked about Wang yet. Oh, Wang? Yeah, Wang. Oh. <laughs> oh, you're I'm not going to talk about Wang. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, I wasn't around, heard yes. of Wang. And also, around. you watch a lot of... Uh, they held on to the, the, the technology for too long. They didn't reinvent themselves. Here's a good company that does reinvent this themselves. This is Wang. Yeah, Wang. 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 Let us guess. But Let me guess. Let's look, guess. Who 3M. Themselves? 3M's good. They're very good. Oh. Think about yeah. Intel. Intel, oh. yeah. Ooh. Intel, right? They, they go, right. my latest microprocessor, if somebody's going to copy it, so I'm going to move on to the next generation and the next. And the next. I'll be so far ahead of you technology-wise, you won't be able to catch up with me. They are a great example of that. Matter of fact, with the first... I tried to start a wafer fab plant in my backyard, and I couldn't do it. It was just two Chinese did the you same thing. You know, what thing. was the name of the CEO? I read that book a long time ago, and I loved it. That's, Which one? It's called oh. Only the Paranoid oh, Survive. Yeah. Yes, yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a good the point. The Intel guy, yeah. There's another Growth, book called uh, Crossing the Chasm by yeah. Roy Moore, I think it is. Uh, but it basically says... So as Who wrote Toys in the Attic? I don't know. Is that a movie? It was Alice Cooper, right? John is a serious guy. He never played with toys. <laughs> but there's a there's a theory. It's actually more than a theory because we talked about experience curves, which you missed this wonderful experience curve discussion. There's a, something called a substitution analysis. So a substitution analysis says some new product is going to take over from some old product. It's just going to happen. And it's always an S-shaped curve. There are early adopters. Follow me now. I'm coming up the S-curve from the, the from the ground floor. Yeah. And then it's going to really take off and go exponential straight up. And then it's going to level off and become mature, right? That's called substitution analysis. So think about when uh, radial tires took over from bias belt tires. We're all kind of old enough here to think about that, right? Yeah, that's they, not. They, yeah, no. they followed exactly that. I've got thousands of examples of how substitution analysis occurred. Microwave ovens coming into the home follows a very sharp curve. As a matter of fact, the substitution of one product or service for another is happening so much faster now. Think Uber, Uber, right? Uber, Think Lyft. Uber. It happened in 
a year. And within a year or two, a billion, a multi-billion dollar company was created. Did you mention blockchain? Blockchain. <laughs> we're, we're, blockchain. We're no, never wait, going to talk the, blockchain. Wait, the, the Uber Lyft thing. So Uber, so Lyft is a copy of Uber. Lyft yes, is not a different product that's right. yeah. changing or disrupting. Are you talking about disruption or just copycats? In uh, any given market, there's always room for three, com- three competitors. Three competitors. Always. You sound like you have been at a consulting firm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you, well, you missed the too first long. half. I've you missed the, the first half of the podcast. Way too long. Yeah, percentages. <laughs> probably just like our audience. It's kind of walking when I walk in. I got my sandwich. I took a leak, and I'm here to listen to the rest of the podcast. <laughs> now, the, this podcast is interesting whenever you tune in. This is family friendly, by the way. So we have great. E, the explicit yeah, rating. Of course. I've been trying to keep it clean. So, how many, so this is not an interview, but I'm oh, going to God. ask a question. Oh, no. So how many times you see a startup pitch now that you've oh. been around and you've seen it all yeah and you say wow when From he sees blockchain when i see yeah. david friend present okay oh, 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 oh. <laughs> oh no we, we call <laughs> him uh, we have another name for him yeah. friend david so so, <laughs> oh, friend so david. nobody will remember who yeah. he is so. exactly or when you eat sushi yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's very there's wasabi. very few that I see wasabi. That I go, wow. wasabi. <laughs> there's there's very few that I see that go wow uh, there's there are a couple I mean I do uh, uh, no the, names I can't use uh, no names I won't use no names. names but I do the venture mentoring service over oh, yeah. at MIT yep. you can use that uh, as well so yeah. I have seen in this, this last year I've seen one that I think is fabulous for that reason it's a cooling technology for integrated circuits that's cool and yeah. very cool very cool and, and they it it can cool chips. 10 times faster using very simple technology for one-tenth the cost. And bigger, you, when you pour water. Fan. Oh, yeah, I was going to say water. <laughs> pretty much. But it was developed. hot. It was developed. cool. And so Lincoln Labs. Has both, uh, both and yeah. it really works. Yeah, I'm excited hedging. about He's that one. He's hedging his bets. Yeah. So, so you're excited about the actual technology, not the management. Yeah. Well, you know, I've, when you get enough gray hairs, you've kind of been around enough, so you can walk into a situation, even, you know, at Boston Harbor Angels, and you hear the pitch and whatnot, and you go, I see three things wrong with this. I mean, uh, Jeff Arnold does it all the time. Sorry for the name, but he does it because he's been in the medical industry. So no, he doesn't. He doesn't. He, he does the good side. He sees the three things and avoids them. <laughs> <laughs> right, the three ditches you could stumble in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but when you've been around an industry for a certain period of time, you can almost intuitively feel why it's going to be successful and why it's not going to be well, successful. Well, then, then now the challenge on you is just to start uh, get out pen and paper and just start writing down the successful companies. Just to uh, actually, what I, I, I thought. You might ask that, Uh-oh. and uh, I actually I've got a couple successful companies. Are you a stock that, picker? Um, you know, there's only one stock that I've been really successful at picking. Apple. The um, I think a, a good example of a manufacturing company, a product-based company I like anyway, is uh, Gore. Gore. Gore is a Gore is a multi-billion-dollar company. Very secretive company. Uh, they're based on, I think, Delaware. They keep me dry. <clears throat> they keep yeah. you dry. That was their first uh, claim to fame was the Gore-Tex, right? Yeah. You saw those tags. Yeah. Have it. The tags, by the way, were hanging off of Columbia jackets yeah. and uh, yeah, Nike they, jackets. Yeah, like Intel inside. It was yeah. Gore-Tex inside. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it's we, like Dolby. Do you know how? Yeah, I mean, that is true. incredibly expensive true. to do because Nike and Columbia don't want anybody's tags hanging in on the outside, mm. and the only reason they would do it is because it was such a revolutionary and product. Wanted yeah. to buy it. If you yeah. want it, our tags got to hang My on the outside. My friend Al loves it. Al, 
But there's, isn't, isn't, there, isn't there a bunch Gore? of Me Too? Al Gore. Right? <laughs> I don't know that guy. He invented the internet. Though, I guess. <laughs> he invented the internet. Yeah, he uses it But on if the you internet. think about it today, they've, they've taken, to your point of where else can you take a product, and they've moved into multiple areas that are super successful, one being medical areas, one of the tubes, if you go to a hospital, when they pump things into you or the tubes that are flowing liquids around, those are sort of fluorine-based types of tubes. They have very unique characteristics, and Gore moved into that and created a multi-hundred million dollar business. Oh, because they know it. fluorine, because they, they are doing, yeah. They absolutely, know they do. What is fluorine? Oh, I don't know. It's is that the stuff con- I use in my tooth- toothpaste? Fluoride. Fluoride. <laughs> oh, we're getting physics techie here now. <laughs> so you're, you're an engineer by trade. So how about things you don't understand? So there's this whole thing what? where don't <laughs> invest in something you don't know, which I, feel, I think is absolute bullshit. You have to. And so if I say to you, blockchain or blockchain. cryptocurrency or some biotech stuff where you look at it, it's not engineering, it's not the cooling for a chip. Do you run away from that? Or you say, you know what, I'm going to look at the entrepreneur and say, this is this person is amazing. I don't look at the entrepreneur. I look at the entrepreneur's advisors. In other words, I firmly believe that if someone has been in an industry for a long period of time and feels that this is going to be revolutionary because of these elements, then I will listen to them, not so much the entrepreneur, because the entrepreneur gets infatuated with the, what they're, they're doing. Whether, whatever happens. No matter yes. whatever it is. I don't I care. I go one simple. step further. Those advisors, they have that big picture of all the pictures, all these advisors say, have any of them actually invested in the company? Yes. Oh, that's that good point. Yeah. That's always my... So that's always, advice uh, to entrepreneurs. Because anybody will say, yeah, you can put my picture in there. Get a big name. I, you guys are, to we are losing sight of the, this podcast. Oh, that's right. What's so, the one around the, the ones you tell, tell us about failures? Tell us something failures. that's so, loved in it that has. Yeah, so here's the, there's one. I wrote down the key to success. Yes. One, one oh, sentence. If you oh, like the key to success okay. of any product or service, okay. I'm going to knock it off and write a book on it. So go ahead. You can do that. <laughs> yes. If you can provide customers, I don't care who the customer is. Yeah. Yep. With a product or a service that is somewhere between five to ten times better than the existing product or service along an important dimension of their ownership of that product, and you can do it, always everybody asks about the price, at a lower price, you will be super successful. That sounds like wasabi. <laughs> we hope. <laughs> it's Never very simple. <laughs> Something that's very five simple. times cheaper. To, like, so take so, that sentence and... Wait a minute. No, no. So one write, example? All you have to do is you can, if you write that sentence mm-hmm. down 10 or 20,000 times... Right. Make it about 60 pages long. Get a book. <laughs> I was thinking of doing it's like that. every actually. other self-help book I've seen. <laughs> Absolutely. Same thing written 30,000 times. <laughs> I've always said if you do everything right and never make a mistake, you'll be successful. Well, there, there, you go. Go. Yeah. there we go. There we go. But, you know, this is a gauge that you can test. You can go out and test in the marketplace. Is this better than the existing product or service? Let me ask you. Do you think Uber or Lyft is better than taxi service? Yes. By, I think it's better by huge margin, right? Yeah. I mean, st- stinky squat. I mean, Wait a minute, the official word is taxi. Uber. We hate Uber. That's the official word. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Of course. We, we all do use it. We all use <laughs> it. Oh, Uber, I hate them. But you get into the taxi cabs. They're expensive. They were cramped. They were always hot. The air conditioning didn't work. The driver hadn't slept in three days. What about the ads? I mean, the ads on the TVs. Oh, you don't like those? I love them. <laughs> Come on. But, but I, I think that's a revolutionary. They so did sick exactly of Jimmy that. Kimmel on those things. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How about iPhone? Who? Do you like iPhone? I mean, iPhone? Now, now, we, now we know it, but when iPhone first came out, was oh, it revolutionary? Yes. Oh, my God. I mean, when yeah. you first saw that product, you went, 
I have to have that. I don't care what it costs right. because it was a digital repository and they had the best ads, right? I mean, they had the woman dancing and I the great tunes. I think you drank the Kool-Aid, though. Because, oh, my because God, I did. You could have argued the same thing about the Newton or one of their the Newton, uh, the you, Newton. You beat me to it. I was going to say one word. Like the Edsel. Yeah. You yeah. Put, if you put fins on a Newton, you'd have an Edsel. <laughs> <laughs> the Newton, right? I had the Newton. It didn't, it didn't do as much. No, but it, <laughs> it didn't do anything. Didn't, it didn't do anything. Yeah, I worked on a product with a Newton, as a matter of fact, for agricultural purposes, so oh, I know really? the Newton. Yeah, yeah so, I love yeah. scribbling those. How about Amazon? Those? How about uh, Amazon? What do you think about Amazon? I think it's a no-brainer now with Prime, but I don't think it was a no-brainer back then. With books, yeah, just so, books? That was so it's a gestation period, right? I mean, they got better Go and better. Redigi. Yeah. <laughs> Go Redigi. Go Redigi. No, but so, <laughs> so there's hope for companies. So if you have, someone said once, if you have enough money oh, and no. time. Oh, no you'll end up being successful. No, I would disagree with that because I think, again, people get infatuated with their product and they'll run out of money and then no one's going to buy it because there's transitions in technology. Both use Polaroid, for example. Instant film got displaced by digital, right? I mean, and by video. Yeah, I was at a deal with a Kodak chairman who was saying, hey, we're aware, but people still like film, and we've got these plants that we haven't depreciated fully yet, and we got into them, and we got to use them, and yes, we're very aware of digital. We're right on top of it. Video killed the radio star. And then, (laughs) (laughs) again, oh, let's do, uh, let's go back in time. Let's go back to calculators. Remember all the mechanical calculators? calculators. I took a course in the 10-key, the 10-key Merchant, a three-unit course on the 10-key Merchant, the Frieden and the comptometer. What are you talking about? And the, these are <laughs> calculators. Yeah. You have to be of a certain age head. because there was a course before you had a calculator to do a square root. Yeah. You had a, a hundred keys and you'd <laughs> have right. to punch those things in <laughs> and it was a very complicated. Are you kidding me? <laughs> well, it, yeah, was called retired. it was yeah, called the Merchant. Retired. <laughs> it's not retired. They're hey, look it. So you know I, got a, I got a gentleman's C in it. Come on. So you know the story NCR yeah. just finished building brand five brand new huge plants to make mechanical calculators when the Bomar came to market the first electronic oh, calculator they yeah. closed all the plants because no one was going to be buying mechanical calculators but they, they after them, that uh, and then Texas fast enough or or did they wait to crash like they crashed and burned they crashed and burned so. I mean they got displaced and that's the you know reverse s curve that's what David's theory is all What's companies that? are bound to fail Oh yeah, that's that's. Oh, that, that, uh, let me ask you now that I'm finally. No, we have someone up, who could. I'm who finally could really know where we are. No, 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 no. Let me ask him that question. Not, not, not. Is it true that companies that run out of money fail? Because we've heard that before. What? Why is it that all companies are bound to fail? Is failure the natural state of things? It's sort of like death. Death. Now, there'll be dinosaurs it here otherwise, right? It is. Well, it is absolutely right. Here, but okay. Other yeah. than that, in, until you can find sort of the fountain of youth, right? Uh, for a company. For a company, then I think you're absolutely right. There is a, a company has a certain time frame that it will be successful in, you know, if it meets the criteria that I just talked about. And then something new will happen. Someone will invent something new. And if the company gets blindsided by or infatuated with just their own technology in their core, which they all do, they will go out of business. Well, I think that's too simple. I'll argue that's too simplistic because I don't think they're infatuated with it. There's an amount of inertia that is uh, inertia that's critical yes. to continued operations. So there must be something beyond... But it's continued. The, the Japanese invented this continuous innovation cycle. So if you can build your company on continuous innovation, you're not the same company 
every year. You change, so technically you survive. Well, if you can move on to different technologies, because your your present technology, your base technology, is what every company tries to build off of, and that's when they're usually driven to failure, because they're trying to ram that technology or product or service into places well, where no, it doesn't but belong. The, but the flip side is the flip side is that there are probably companies that have succeeded along that exact approach, using that exact approach, and we don't call them failures because they've succeeded, and well, we don't notice them until they go too far. And so there must be something about let's talk about on that the, on the margin. Let's talk about two sets of companies. Let's talk about IBM, and let's talk about the uh, automotive the companies, the GM and Ford and uh, Chrysler in the United States. Yeah, post bailout. <laughs> let's start with the automotive companies. Okay. They Ford did not take a bailout. Oh, there we go. In the, what was it now, uh, late 70s, 80s, the only reason that the automotive companies here in the United States didn't go out of business was because we restricted the number of foreign plants or number of foreign cars that could be imported. Go tariffs. See? That's go tariffs. Deal. Absolutely. Yeah. But and hey, that wait was a second. Archives. When a country subsidizes an industry... <laughs> Unfairly, and then dumps dumps the stuff over here. That's not a fair. I have a Canadian reaction to that. Move. (laughs) 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 That was to give the U.S. companies enough time to stop letting their cars rust out on the street and get rid of the big fins on the car, right? So, and then what do the planned obsolescence was part of the car business? Yeah, I'm almost positive. Totally planned obsolescence. (laughs) And so, what did the foreign plant companies do? Well, they built plants in the United States, right? BMW, Toyota, everybody. And many of them are assembly plants, so some of the core technology is still in Japan. I mean, Honda makes them... Honda's core competence is internal combustion engines. They make yeah. the best internal combustion engines anywhere, and they still retain that IP there. Okay. So what's your point? My point is, is that every company will go out of business unless you get these artificial things like tariffs that oh. are coming in. And and even that, you, know, you, you try to save the industry, and many times that's awkward because the industry doesn't need to be saved. It needs to be demolished and rebuilt in a different model. Uh, you know, so you, you like the Adam Smith concept of the, the invisible hand where oh. you let the market decide the company should fail when they need to fail pretty much uh, uh, it's it's important pretty much because i think eventually it happens anyway you try to set up these artificial borders around a country to preserve an industry and what happens well the rest of the world bypasses you so let's, go, that's talk right. about, let's talk about the other piece of it though which is the a need for the inertia what is the need um for so if the company that invents uh, say he'll not he'll pack who'd you say ibm ncr ncr or ncr with a calculator right so what about the calculator so they started. I don't. I don't remember what the early, early, earliest ones looked like. Mick could probably tell us. Um, well, but the company was called NCR for a particular reason. It was called National Cash Register. Oh, there. We what go. happened to those? Okay. True. So anyway, so, so, we started, go ping, ping, so there was some point. IBM displaced them. There was a point at which the, uh, as they extended their product line, NCR, from the initial cash register to the gonculator, eventually to the calculator. Yes. The, the mechanical calculator. You'd say, well, that was a successful move. Look, they beat themselves. And, okay. Absolutely. So, they, so at some point, the, it's not a successful move. And how do we know? Well, the companies need to extend those markets. They need to extend their product right. lines along the same directions. That's the inertia. So that inertia has got to be key for something. It's when they overstep the bounds, and none of us know when that's going to The real issue is that it's not even so much the, the inertia. I mean, I agree that it's there, but the problem is that the senior management in the company doesn't recognize they're about to get blindsided by a new technology. 
And they keep thinking that this foundation that they build, that they're going to have loyal customers. By the way, there's no such thing as a loyal customer in any industry. The, the loyal customers are going to continue to buy their outdated product, outdated service forever when someone else comes in with scanners. Wait a minute. So right, maybe the supermarket. Just start talking about something I know nothing about, which seems to stop absolutely no <laughs> Yeah, we're yeah, waiting this for is what it's all about. For, this is what we're waiting for the interesting part of your question, yes. <laughs> put myself to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> but, but they've got the, 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 you're talking about mechanical industry. Can you read the statutes that provided the means for a patent? For us, I mean, maybe. <laughs> but you've got. You've but he's got, an IP lawyer. These, so these are um, these are mechanical devices. They require plants, as you've said. They require plants. They're so plants electronics. Require electronics require plants. No, but this is true of all these businesses. The inertia, I guess, is the, is the point that you've got to make capital investment in order to build product to meet current demand. And once you have the capital investment in place, you're taking a calculated risk that that if we just tweak the plant a little, we make another plant just like it. We can keep up with what we hope will be demand in a particular right. direction. So you take your your um, you take your cash register and you make it the gonculator and you take yeah. the gonculator and you right. make it the the, uh, the calculating machine. So that's the inertia. The inertia is I guess essentially the, the physical plants that are necessary. So um, and if it's not the physical plants that's necessary for software companies, it's the it's the it's the code. But all this stuff is critical, isn't it? That is the inertia is critical to the company's maintaining. Yeah, eleven thirty-eight a.m. and it's sixty-eight degrees. <laughs> <laughs> this was perfect. We're not going to go to the traffic report. David Down. This is the longest question. The longest ever, question ever. So, I think David likes to hear himself. I do. Maybe. Exactly. <laughs> Think about those they, headphones on. I learned something. I mean, how to hey, convince? Hey, answered my question. Convince, <laughs> no, okay. Well, the inertia, 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 inertia is critical. No, well, no, no. So crypto. Let, wait a minute. You got a serious answer? What, you have a, you have an answer to his question. You understood his question? Well, yes, because you know when you were talking he's about inertia, per, he's a paid consultant. He always has an answer. Know, That's the way it works. You know, the, the flip side of that is momentum, right? Inertia, momentum. Yeah, yeah. Because you get more and more, more yeah, momentum, right. and yeah. the better and better it is. Yeah. So the key is, how do you kind of balance those two yeah, out? Yeah, there we go. So yeah. let me give you a lot of And we all know that if you run out of money, you're screwed. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> okay. But, you know, the but, very fundamental reason you run out of money is because nobody's buying your product. That's I right. Mean, so it comes back to customer needs analysis. And did you really do a good job in understanding your customer? And clearly you didn't because they're not buying your product or your service. So it's really very simple. You can use the most sophisticated tools in the world to do the analysis and create beautiful charts and whatnot. But at the end of the day, it's very simple. What's you, that? It's very simple. That you don't it? understand your customers. Oh, you don't understand right. your customers' needs. I agree with you 100. I don't oh, care if it's a military customer. And sometimes you don't understand your customers. I usually just disagree on principle. <laughs> <laughs> I think okay. your customer doesn't understand you. <laughs> there it is. We had a guest. We had a guest like that earlier. <laughs> yeah. So here's my consulting story. So they brought a consultant, very very expensive. Was that you? No. <laughs> to a building oh. because the elevators were too too slow. And then they, they brought engineers, they were studying the tower, how to build another elevator, and the, the, the really cool consultant showed up and found like a $100 solution. Oh, he that? put mirrors in the entrance. So it looked like they're going faster? No, so people would look at themselves to uh, fix their... Fix oh, their uh, it's like Trump Tower. And no tower. one complained to anyone <laughs> like, about like Trump, Trump Tower. <laughs> Trump Tower. Yeah, they put a burger <laughs> place. They put so a burger restaurant a, next door. We're, we're slowly finishing up, but sure. what do you think about the cryptocurrency market and all this blockchain. new yeah. blockchain. <coughs> blockchain. It's new. It's 
it's exactly what you're saying about the new technology taking over the existing technology, but yet yeah, everybody yeah, is okay. reacting. He's, he's smiling. He's smiling in he's, a knowing way. I think he's we saying, can this is answer. Bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, David and Zian have already bought the pig. Yes. <laughs> so yes. the whole point of this was to ask about cryptocurrency. We could have done that at the beginning. <laughs> And blockchain. That was the point of this podcast. You know, I think it's really interesting technology in the blockchain piece. Blockchain. Uh, I think it's doomed to failure Ooh. for a couple reasons. Okay. I think the crypto area is really going to be good for uh, the drug industry and you know, black internet and all those kinds of things, which are kind of weird. <laughs> People want to hide behind. But they're I already think, doing that. That's I been think going displacing on for five years. currency Blockchain. until we turn into a world economy where everybody accepts it, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. So I see your substitution well, curve with between, blockchain is about okay. 100, maybe 50 years. Where now. are we now? 50 you, years. You're at the very, no, very no, I think between legalization of marijuana and blockchain, we're all set. There's your world. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> it could be there. So if wow. you get out of it at the <laughs> right time. Are you, are you saying if you smoke a whole lot, you can uh, buy into the currency thing? <laughs> <laughs> so when, so so when you see articles that say this is the, the, the future $4 trillion dollar market so all these people don't understand what they're saying one I, I believe that is true. I think that was a loaded question just to warn you just no, 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 I, I don't understand I'll be very upfront I don't understand it because I don't want to understand it oh I minute. think we, can, we have a I think very I, simple listen go with this go Blockchain. With a Russian accent, yes. then you're right. Blockchain. You will buy my blockchain. <laughs> blockchain. <laughs> then you're all set. Do you understand that? You say blockchain, you're all so set. You don't Absolutely. want to understand because you think it's going to come and go. So if you don't spend well, time let, on let me tell you why. Uh, because what I understand of blockchain, the small, tiny little blockchain. amount, is it takes huge amounts of power, computer power, to be able to actually implement this. It takes a That's amount right. of, amount of uh, no, no, energy no, no, that no, comes no. out of new, Quebec new hydropower. technologies that are avoiding that. Yeah, okay. Proof of stake. So that'll happen, yeah. right? But yeah. it will happen fast enough so you don't have to, like, burn up, you know, 300 forests to be able to yeah, create yeah, enough yeah. power the old stuff. to do yeah. this. That's, That's the, the old stuff. stuff. That, uh, that's the stuff that make it So it could happen. I mean, but there are then, tunnels that take you to a better But the flip yeah. side is... the dinosaur stuff. But the flip side is you're trying to displace with this new currency. You're trying to displace governments. And there's always a fear of displacing uh -oh. government. There's because a of, tariff argument in here. Uh, yes. A key Ooh. aspect of any government is their currency. Yeah. And until a government decides that blockchain is safe enough and they can, con the government can control, control enough, can control enough. It's a, it's a control yeah. issue. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, so it could happen. I agree. But it's a control issue. And I'm sorry. We're looking at Argentina and some other sort of some failed economies looking at blockchain. They didn't buy into blockchain. <laughs> Kim Jong Un bought some blockchain. Blockchain. <laughs> I think he'll be sure imposing Trump are tariffs. discussing it right now. <laughs> no, but I mean that's what people said about the internet when it first started. Email, uh, web. What's this web about? You can. I. I remember I used to show people the websites and they would laugh at me. Well, no, no, no. They were laughing at you. <laughs> well, the very the very first use of the internet, of course. <laughs> 
was oh, it was at, it was probably developed at MIT was for playing games, right? Drag yep. Dungeons uh, yep, and Dragons. I, I mean, it was yep, all yep, about game playing, and, and there was and war, games, de- war games, yeah, war games, war yeah, games yeah, that yeah. they developed it off of. And then yeah. it kind of grew with BBN, and you know, kind of came in and helped develop the internet. And it, everything's got a gestation time. You have to sort of prove its worth to kind of get it out there. It was all driven by the military. By the way, we wouldn't have any of the electronics today, including these mics we're hissing and talking into, without hissing. the military development of the integrated circuits back in the 60s. In the late 50s and 60s, the military, because no one would invest in electronics back then. No well, one. Why did we quit using transistors anyway? I don't know. <laughs> well, vacuum tubes. I grew up on vacuum so tubes. So we need war to keep <laughs> our innovation going. Oh, remember war games? <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, of course. Of course. Well, you know, it forces I mean, you I, to stay alive. VR, blockchain, AR, AI. I mean, it's the buzzwords keep coming. They do. Well, that's the how buzzwords keep investors going. There's no, it is, and truly. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with it. I think it's absolutely a fine idea. But I think the fundamental uh, aspect of when it is going to be adopted is really governmental on blockchain versus consumer. And maybe certain classes of consumers. I think the government's in Buffett. When Buffett invests, then everybody will invest. <laughs> I agree. Buffett, Buffett's very he's, down on blockchain. He's not exactly an early yeah, He's down adopter. until he's up and then... Yeah. Just a second, we're getting ready for the closing comments. Yeah, the closing okay. comments. Oh, not, we're not there yet. Nope. I'm not allowed. You're not going to let go. Allowed. You're not allowed. <laughs> no, but we no, need, no, we need some words of wisdom. Not yet, not yet. Not on, yet. A few more minutes. On, a few on, more minutes. He's pulling... We, okay. we have a, a sound effect machine yeah, that takes work. literally 15 minutes to set up. It's mechanic. But it's almost worth it. So tell us, so so if you were to tell a company or a startup some words of wisdom on how to avoid failing, what would you say? Uh, clearly, uh, they need to hire this, me. By the way, <laughs> is this the right is this the right music for your sound? Absolutely. So let's go go launch into it. All, all of you folks out there that want a successful company, the name is John Stempek from Avalon Associates. My my phone number is but up and up and up. That's a great. Perfect. Bye bye.